Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Romans chapter 1. If you're here visiting this morning because of one of the individuals being baptized, welcome. We are delighted to have you here. I do want to also just make an additional footnote uh, to those of you who are a regular part of our body, um, that today we saw in the baptisms both the evidence of faithful parents, faithful homes, preaching the gospel there, and God doing a work over the years to draw people to faith in Him, even when they're young. And we saw the work of somebody from our body, Uche, who shared the gospel with Fabrice when he met him, when they ran in and saw a connection with each other on the university camp, by which God put some final pieces of understanding of the gospel together for Fabrice in order to uh, bring him to a saving knowledge of himself. So, praise God for the faithful parenting. Praise God for the faithful witnesses. May it be an encouragement to all of us that we never know when any gospel conversation may be used by God to do an eternal, powerful work. So we're in our fourth Sunday in this great book. Today, focusing on verses 24 to 32 of chapter 1, seeking to finish it out. Last Sunday, we got through the, we finished out the introduction, which is the first 17 verses, and verses 16 and 17 stand as this resounding thought that ends the conclusion and also is going to launch the major themes of all the rest of the book as God's power, God's righteousness, and beginning in verse 18, God's wrath, how they all work together in order to bring about God's full plan of salvation for man. We saw last week verse 18 is really a summary statement of what's wrong with man, why God's wrath is being revealed, that man suppresses truth at the end of verse 18. In verse 21, that man has been given enough knowledge but fails despite that to pursue God in order to honor him and to thank him as creator and life giver and Lord of the universe. And then in verse 23, and we'll see a little more today, that as individuals apart from God become more and more foolish, they exchange what should be the giving of glory to God as we just sang about and give it to something much lesser in creation, whether tangible idols or intangible one. In short, man turns his back on God, going further and further away from him rather than seeking after him. John Piper says, failed worship is our worst disorder. This is beneath all the maladies of the world. Repairing this, not first our disordered sexuality, is our main business in life. So today in verses 24 to 32, God gives us an explanation of how what verse 18 said. His wrath is being revealed toward all unrighteousness and ungodliness. It centers on a triple reiteration of a short, pregnant phrase. God gave them up. And in verse 24, he specifies to impurity. In verse 26, to dishonorable passions. And in verse 28, a little further into it, to a debased mind. Some see this as a three-step descent, either away from God or down into sin, into the abyss that wickedness brings. Perhaps also we might see it as three 
unique angles, camera lenses, on some of the same major issues. So first of all, let's just ponder before we dig into the meat of this, this phrase, God gave them up. It's the idea of abandoning or releasing people to the life that they really are wanting, allowing people to pursue what they want, even though that wrecks them, rather than forcing them to come to him. Someone said briefly, God hands us over to our depravity. Boyce said, when men and women abandon God, God abandoned them. Douglas Moo notes that this is language that's used throughout the Old Testament whenever God is giving Israel over to enemies as a way of disciplining them for their disregard of him. Someone else portrayed it as God letting go of a boat that a swift-flowing river will immediately begin to take downstream further and further away. James Boyce points out, I thought, helpfully, man has wanted to be rid of God or to put him out of his life, and so God does, he honors that request. Like the father of the prodigal son, he releases the rebellious child, permitting him to depart with all his many possessions and goods to the far country. Or we might say a little more illustratively for us, it's like a parent of a two-year-old who's tugging and pulling at the hold the caring, protective hold of the parent and how the parent can just let the child run over the edge of the cliff or into the arms of a pedophile or into a busy 20-lane interstate because that child is convinced the exerting of his own will as opposed to his parents' will is absolutely more desirable to him no matter how suicidal the parent knows it is. C.S. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those who, to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose the latter. A few other details very quickly uh, about this to just try and make it uh, clearer. Number one is, there's no call to action by the church here. Now, we have many groups, many that are opposing things that we see in our culture in many of these ways, but God here is, is making a robust description of the condition of mankind and evil, and not at this point speaking to the church and how it is to respond. It simply is explaining the revealing of God's wrath. Intriguingly, no mention of the word sin in this passage. For now, God is using, that'll show up in chapter 3, for now he's using Synonymous terms of unrighteousness in contrast to God's righteousness, ungodliness in, in contrast to God, or godliness, God-centeredness, evil, words like that, wickedness, malice. There's no mention of Satan. No blame is put on him here. All of the responsibility lies directly on man in terms of how he is responding to what God has given him. There is no gospel message here. There is no mention of Christ here. Because that's not the purpose. And this is a longer breaking out of the gospel than a lot of ones that we see in other gospels or in other uh, epistles. And then finally, this passage by itself doesn't offer hope or help. It's simply showing what we might say is the rap sheet on mankind. Making an irrefutable case of how fully guilty we all are before God. 
It's hard evidence for God's courtroom, where the Old Testament declares in Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And in Romans, coming later in chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. So if you got our bulletin today, you might note in it the gospel presentation that's on the back uh, or front, depending on how you're holding the paper, where Max Stiles explains that people are made in the image of God, we're beautiful and amazing creatures with dignity, worth, and value, uh, meant by God's original design to have an incredible relationship with him. But through our willful, sinful rebellion or rejection or pushing away from God rather than toward God, what Romans 1 is describing from many angles, we've turned from being his children to become his enemies. Just as Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of his ministry was emphasizing that humans, even those who are trying to keep God's law, dutifully commit far more sin, far more evil than any of us thinks we're even capable of. We aren't just lost, though that is a way that Scripture describes us, or broken with a few things wrong that we need to tweak. Evil ravages and wrecks all that we could be all that we were created to be and the way we are created to live. Yet, harsh as this is, and it may be really, really hard for some of you, this is at least a grace of God to tell us what the truth is about the way we are. It's the clearest and best explanation of what's wrong with us, what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with our families, what's wrong with our society, what's wrong with our nation. Don Piper puts it this way. Paul's teaching about why a society denigrates into unrestrained, debauched, destructive evil is unlike any analysis you will read today. One of the reasons for this is that when a society is sinking into moral decay, one of the traits of that decay is the inability to see what is happening. The social mind becomes so defective in the moral decadence that it doesn't have the categories or the framework to recognize evil for what it really is. We live in such a day. The inability to render sound moral judgments is evident almost wherever you look, which makes this passage of Scripture one of the most relevant and needed texts in all of our Bible in our, for our day, precisely because it seems so foreign. What we need is a word from outside our defective world and our depraved thinking. We need a word from God the one who created and made us and set everything up. And we certainly expect such a word to be very strange because we have become strangers to the reality of God in a very self-absorbed age. So please follow along now as we read God's word here, this unit of thought, all of us asking God for the needed grace of greater understanding. First in verses 24 and 25, the first thing that God gave them up. Therefore God gave them up in the, sec in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Second reason in verses 26 and 27. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. The third use of this term in 28 through 31. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then a final condemnation. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Father, today's words from you here in Romans 1 have tremendous significance for us trying to understand who and what we humans are and have become apart from you. Though these words are hard to accept, like hearing that we have terminal disease of our body, this is even worse, for it is a terminal disease of our very hearts and souls. Please today, correct and refine our views of you, of true righteousness, and of unrighteousness. We acknowledge that our thoughts are not your thoughts, but I pray that you will align our thoughts here with yours. And I pray that you will grant spiritual insight that those who need your salvation will cast themselves on you and that those in the midst of being saved by you will cast themselves afresh on you. Use your word today in your people for your glory, we ask. Amen. Verse 24 and 25 then are the first reference to God giving them up. In simplest terms here, God is letting them plunge into with following the lusts of their own hearts, their own desires, into the toxic cesspool of sin's impurity. At first, it all seems fun and games for most people as they enter into it, but it has serious and very sad consequences. It's not the kind of impurity that just leaves a little stainer there like a freckle. It's an impurity like in a glass of water that permeates and poisons the whole thing. And what this impurity gives itself over to in verse 24 is the dishonoring of our bodies among ourselves. Rob Ventura says, A denial of God always leads to defilement of life, whether morally, spiritually, or physically. Now, let's make an argument here that this is sexual immorality. I think there's a strong case for that. We just encourage you to consider that it might be other ways that humans carry out disgraceful, degrading acts on their bodies or on other people's bodies. Whether it's us trying to do something with our bodies, God didn't design our bodies to be, or to harm or hurt the human body. Here we can think of everything from abortion and infanticide to suicide and other ways of self-harm. Whole cultures that practice mutilation as we saw in a tribe in Kenya, well, not visibly with our eyes, but saw the tribe who practices this and destroys women's lives from the very beginning. 
This whole area of gender identity now that's moving in our country is a vivid example, one horrific way in which humans are destroying their bodies that God has wonderfully made. And when we dishonor the human body, in whatever ways we might do that, we are dishonoring the creator of that body who has given each human soul a precious body to inhabit. I remind you here of Psalm 139, that just the descriptions of God with every individual, knitting them together in the secret place of the mother's womb, fearfully, wonderfully making them intricately weaving incredible things about every human body together. But the reality here is that man distorts and attacks and dishonors that because they're believing a lie. They're exchanging the truth about God for a lie. A lie that they find more uh, alluring to their lust and their flesh, more attractive, more desirable, and most of them will argue more believable than God being the creator of that body. Whether it's lies they make up, lies the world gives them and feeds them or the culture, and lies that Satan may, who also is out to ruin and destroy the human body in any ways that he can. Piper again, noting here that they worship and serve the creature. To the natural man, it's wiser to design your own God than to take what you are given. Making your own God makes you independent and keeps you in control. In other words, making your own God lets you be God, which are really the first five words of Satan's or part of Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve in the garden that you will be like God, plain to a lust, a craving, a desire in us as creatures to be our own gods. So whether it's worshiping ourselves, our bodies, our minds, our abilities, our place in this world, our identity, whatever it is, highlighting that as the thing we will live for, or a certain other particularly powerful, alluring human, and you can see our worship of humans all over the place, or just Humans in general as the supreme beings of God's creation. Luther says that man worships his own figment of reason more devoutly than the living God. At the core, the lie that is most damning is that the creator is not the most desirable and best thing, but that his creation is. Now, there's one last interesting, intriguing phrase at the end of verse 25 that I think is significant. We'll circle back to it at the end. But John MacArthur here posits a theory that I think has perhaps some merit to it. Perhaps unable to continue discussing such vile things without coming up for air, as it were, Paul could not resist adding that refreshing thought, which was a common doxology of the Jews right in the midst of the sea of filth he was describing. And that word of praise of the Lord served by utter contrast to magnify the wickedness of idolatry and all other godliness. So you picture in the midst of all the description, all of a sudden Paul bounces up to simply say, the creator is to be blessed forever, despite what's being done to the human body. Verses 26 and 27 then give us the second thing that God gives mankind up to. Opening with dishonorable passions, flowing from that into homosexuality. One of the three New Testament passages that
that make it very clear God does not accept or condone or allow or permit uh, any sexual immorality, including uh, uh, homosexuality, as permissible within his design for the way that he has made the human body and the way it's to enjoy sexual pleasure. So one of the big lies, if you want to continue to feed off that thought in verse 25, that people exchange the glory of God for, for themselves, is the dishonoring of the human body in the sexual realm, which is one of the holiest things that God created the human body to enjoy within the boundaries, the confines, the protection of a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. Piper notes that there is a profound connection between the disordering of heart worship and the disordering of our sexual lives. In this section, God condemns both genders equally for this particular deviation and disobedience from his design. Known originally to most of us as homosexuality, it eventually became the gay movement, then became the LGBTQ, then added the plus, then additional deviances, always going further and further, including the dishonoring of God's precious rainbow as a promise to not exert his wrath on the earth, even for this sin. But it doesn't matter what we call it or how man reasons out the lies, it goes outside of God's bounds and his singular intention and design for sexual expression. Ventura again, man's aversion to God led to his diversion from God, which ultimately led to his perversion before God. Maybe one simple way in which we see it addressed is Hebrews 13.4. There's a plethora of verses on this, but here it notes how important it is to keep marriage the way God designed it in Genesis 2, to be held honorably among all, Don't abandon that. Don't cohabitate. Don't have multiple partners. Don't do anything outside of the bounds that God has created for sex to be enjoyed. And secondly, getting even more narrow, let the marriage bed be undefiled or keep the marriage bed holy. Whatever is done there, may it be done before God as it is and to the glory and honor of God. God's call here to just simply live a monogamous, faithful, married life or a celibate life. And then at the end of verse 26 or 7, at the end of 27, there is the only line in this section that speaks of a particular or more uh, specific consequence than the wrath of God and God giving them up. And that is to note that they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. All sins carry a penalty, a cost. We reap what we sow. That's a, that's a God-founded principle in all of the universe. But because a sexual union is such a holy act, and to deviate from that is such a wickedness, it seems often that God brings a greater penalty, consequence, suffering, in whatever, any myriad of ways that he does so. Even in Hebrews 13.4, where we saw the call to hold marriage and the marriage bed pure, we're warned right at the tail end of that, that part of our motivation is that God will judge those who are sexually immoral and adult, adulterous, or adulterous. 
So, some judgment now. Certainly not everyone who commits this is struck dead. But knowing that they are beginning already to experience in some profound ways more serious consequences. But lest we make homosexuality or any other sexual deviation to be a sinner and evil that is way worse than others, God adds 21 other equally condemning traits of people who aren't seeking God, to whom God has said, have it your way, rather than help them live his way. It's hardly exhaustive, but I'm told it's the longest list of all of Paul's writings where he will often list a grouping of sins or a grouping of the fruit of the Spirit. This is the longest of those lists, and it simply is a short sampling of what verse 18 was talking about, unrighteousness and godlessness, what human beings become when God is not their center point around which they orbit and operate, and how sin spreads. So verses 28 to 31 then give us this third, God gave them up. We first have a reason, and it's just reiterating what we saw in verses 19 to 23 last Sunday. So if you weren't here last Sunday, you can glance back through those, but basically to say that God has given plenty of evidence about himself for at least men to seek him out about his nature, his power, but man has refused to do that and doesn't see fit, doesn't see as important, doesn't see as primary in his life the need to rightly acknowledge God, the way that God says that he is to be acknowledged because he is God. A couple of interesting wordings here when you look at other translations. New King James, that they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. NIV, a little looser, that it's not worthwhile to retain a knowledge of God. Two points here by Moo and Ventura that I thought were helpful, capturing really all three of these issues God gave them up. Sin will affect our affections, which is what verses 24 and 25 are describing with idolatry. Sin will affect our senses or our sexuality. That's what verses 26 and 27 describe as one example. And sin will affect our very thinking the debased mind that verses 28 to 31 is going to describe in great detail. Ventura says, We see that God's judgment against sinners continues to progress. First, it affects their worship. Second, it affects their bodies. And third, it affects their minds. If we will not submit ourselves to acknowledging God and all that that entails... We will not become like God or greater than God or supplant God ultimately. We will simply become more and more unlike God, more and more like Satan and others. Doing what ought not to be done. So, doesn't matter how many other people are doing these things, doesn't matter how it seems to feel in that moment and how much you might enjoy a particular sin, doesn't matter how that nothing bad seems to be happening to you right now, convincing some that it must be okay, that God isn't that upset. We see that this just describes, if you want a cleaned up illustration, a volcano spewing out lava that is no longer contained, spreading everywhere, really unstoppable, 
and killing all that's in its path. A cruder, but perhaps more helpful illustration, for which I do not apologize, is the projectile of vomit. When it erupts out of us, out of a nauseated stomach, vegetables, rice, potatoes, meat, drink, stomach juices, intriguing colors you've never seen before, all come spraying out. We don't control it. We don't direct it very well. We can't contain it. We don't know how much. We don't know how long. None of that is at our uh, power. It's all the gag reflex of what our body is going to do. But it's a pretty vivid illustration of how sin, once it begins, just spews and spews and spews out. Here are 21 sins very quickly, way too quickly, all interwoven with each other, each of them violating God's nature and God's design. In case you feel like up to this point, you've escaped any kind of condemnation by God from God from the first things. He will get you here. They, those who are without God, who are not seeing fit to acknowledge God or retain God in their knowledge, become filled with it. It will just happen. Can't help it. Not just a little bit, but full, overflowing, abounding is another biblical term. All manner of righteousness. Here's some broad ones at the beginning. Just every kind of wickedness, anything that goes against God, basically nothing's off the table. It's a lack of righteousness that flows from a lack of faith in God. Evil, wickedness. Uh, New King James translates this sexual immorality. None of the other major translations did. Covetousness, capturing the greed, the lust that was earlier talked about, the desires, the cravings that we always want more no matter what God abundantly gives to us. So kindly, we're always discontented, always wanting something more. And that's part of what sin plays on and temptation plays on. Malice, which is just badness. It's just another way of speaking of evil. NIV says depravity here. Full of envy, jealousy, resenting what God has given others, often coveting that uh, for ourselves. Murder, the destroying of human life. It would be good here to remember that Jesus said not only that murder is condemning, but hatred is equal in the sense that it carries the same attitude. It's that desire to be rid of people, to want them out of our lives. Add to that self-murder that we see so prevalently. Strife, contention, discord, fighting, quarreling, the disturbing of our peace, deceit. We who are deceived about the truth and believing lies then turn around and spread those lies. That's actually part of what verse 32 will do in terms of encouraging others to join in. We're all feeding each other on deceit and lies. And man, can the human heart jump there quickly. Maliciousness, so very much like malice earlier, perhaps capturing the habitualness of it, that it's not just an occasional slip-up, but it is something that we return to often. Gossips, whispers, storytellers about other people's information. Slanders, more vicious, backbiting, speaking evil to tear people down or their reputation down. Haters of God, such a graphic description of what all of this is ultimately expressing. The Bible also speaks of us being enemies, and all of this is the same way. Now, James Boyce notes here, I think, a 
observantly, not many people will admit they hate God, choosing rather to think of themselves as rather tolerant of him. But that's part of the issue. Insolent, which is rude, disrespectful. New King James says violent. Haughty, proud, seeing self as important, centering life around self, seeing self as above others. Boastful, verbalizing that haughtiness and that pride about our accomplishments, our actions, our possessions, uh, the, the people around us that we're proud of. Craving and seeking the applause, the approval, the affirmation of people. Elevating one's worth in the eyes of others. Inventors of evil. That's just a way to say we just keep finding new ways to express our sin. Disobedient to parents. Notice that's plunged in here in the midst of this as well. Just look at how that is spread in our own nation and the chaos that is brought. And then four words at the end. The ESV just simply puts them almost as... uh, all-encompassing words, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The New American has a different word in all four of these cases. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And if you just think about how important to God love and mercy are, those are the two ending things about what man does. Um, All of these are just ways in which we lack affection, care for others, that we become calloused, hard, critical, mean, unkind in all kinds of expressions. And then verse 32, like that would have been a powerful ending. Verse 32 adds one more condemnation, and that is the encouraging of evil in other people. So though they know it, though even as they're plunging in all of these things and they're seeing that there are consequences... And that death will often be a consequence even of our sin. And verse 2 of chapter 2, if you turn the page over, will say, we know the judgment of God rightly falls on all who practice such things. But they not only do them, despite knowing that, but give approval to those who practice them. Inviting others to join in. So we have the little phrase, misery loves company. So does sin. So does evil. So does wickedness. So does any kind of rebellion against God, as if having others endorse that as well makes it better. John Murray with some blunt words here. We are not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in the doing of those things that we know have their issue or their result, their effect in damnation. Iniquity is most aggravated when it meets with no inhibition from the disapproval of others and when there is collective, undissenting approbation or approval. Now, all of this in this list does not mean every human has committed every one of these egregiously, but that every individual is equally guilty whatever stripes of sin or rebellion against God that you may choose to live out. Man's condemnation is not according to the kind of sin, but according to any sin. Yes, hallelujah if you haven't taken the path of murder. But don't see yourself as better than a gossip. That's our struggle. The point here is, all of this is damning. No one is without some of these sins. And if we have any sin, any unrighteousness, 
we are doomed. The chapter ends hopeless. But, as a concluding thought, if we don't understand the truest condition that we are in without a relationship with God, we won't understand that we need a Savior. We won't understand that we need God. But if we do see it, know, even though it's not worded here, that God has provided a Savior, an escape from His wrath, a redemption, a way to still get to God despite all of this. Yes, God has given humans up to wrath, to beginning to uh, experience that, and yet he has not given up sinners totally yet by expressing his eternal wrath on Judgment Day. For now, he is patient by his grace, working so that more will repent and believe in Jesus Christ as their salvation. Is there anyone here today that God is speaking to in that way? The bulletin puts it so succinctly and clearly. Still, still, despite becoming enemies of God, all people have the capacity to be in a restored, loving relationship with the living God. How? The provision is Christ, the Son of God, who lived a sinless life, who became on the cross the perfect sacrifice, and through that death on the cross, ransomed sinful people, bought them out of this sin and this bondage and this captivity that Romans 6 will talk about, his sins paying for that, and him bearing the wrath of God against sin, absorbing it all, then dying, rising from the dead as the full vindication of his accomplishment. And the response that God requires from us, this is all in the bulletin, is acknowledgement of our sin, repenting of it, and believing in Christ, even as you heard over and over in the testimonies of baptism. Good word here from Alistair Begg. Everyone needs the gospel. It's a gospel for atheists and agnostics, for Jews, for Gentiles, for Buddhists, for Hindus, for Muslims, for the lost and the lonely, for the happy and the successful, for those who haven't figured out their gender and those who can't figure out their gender. It's a gospel for the whole world. I just want to bring you back, especially if you haven't been here the last couple of Sundays, to Romans 1.16. That salvation is the expression of God's power to everyone who believes in his son. I love the way God puts, had Paul put this in 1 Corinthians 16. So this is a Rob Ventura quote, but um, has within it a text of scripture. If you go to the next slide, I think it's there. There it is. Ventura, although many people in the world are given over to such sins, it does not mean that there is no hope for such people. And he quotes 1 Corinthians 6. I expanded it a little bit, but it's all that paragraph in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. There's that lie that we can believe. And then he lists some sins. Sexual immorality, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Shorter list than Romans 1, but same idea. And such were some of you. In essence, he could say, such were all of you, if not in these listed sins in all kinds of other ways. But, by God's grace, by believing on him, by coming in him in repentance, you were washed, even as baptism illustrates. You were sanctified. You were justified and made right in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and by the power of the Spirit of God. And Ventura closes, and so although God gave up such people to their sins, he did not give up on them in their sins. Hallelujah. The righteousness God requires for anyone to enter heaven is the very righteousness that God gives us through his Son that we can never earn or attain or work for on our own. Hallelujah. Praise God. And that's why that line at the end of verse 25 is there. To the blessed Lord of all for his grace and his goodness in that. God's wrath that's beginning to be revealed and will ultimately be revealed in judgment, in hell, in eternal punishment that's very real, very true. One lie that many are believing that will cost them dearly. God's wrath is escapable, but it's only, only one way by Jesus Christ. His righteousness being given to us through our faith in him and what he has done. And finally, to those who have been given Christ's righteousness, let this be a fresh reminder of just three things that should stun us about the gospel. In seeing all this wickedness, let's not think that ours was any less. That God didn't have to work as powerfully and hard because we weren't as bad as most of these people in Romans 1. We are the people in Romans 1. Hallelujah for God's grace. How stunning it is when you see all the rebellion, all the rejection, all the chaos, all the ruin. And rather than just destroy us like he did in the flood, he says, I'm going to offer you my son. Come believe. Let's never stop being stunned by the gospel and by the grace of God. Secondly, may this intensify our ongoing turning from sin and warring against sin or the biblical language, repenting of our sin. Spurgeon, the nearer a man lives to God, the more intensely has he to mourn over his own evil heart. Though forgiven, hallelujah, it never makes our sin less evil and wrong. God's will and forgiveness is not for us to just be complicit in it, but to fight harder than ever in his power to overcome it. Are there particular sins in this section of Romans today that God opened your eyes to see in your own life that he wants you to repent of and turn, continuing to trust him and believing the promise that when we confess, he will forgive and cleanse. And finally, may God's stunning grace move us to tell those who still don't know, who aren't worshiping him, the need for them to do that. That what they are doing is believing lies, exchanging the glory of God for something less. And help them to see God, to see his righteousness, to see his wrath, and to see his mercy and grace in his son. Rejoice in stunning grace, repent in the stunning grace, and retell of the stunning grace of God. So that the creator is blessed forever. O great God of highest praise, you know every heart here, how we thank you for the grace today to be given your revelation. God, I pray that it will fuel those of us who are already believing, strengthening us in our resolve to love you, rest in you, and live for you. And I pray, Lord, for any here to whom Romans 1 is describing, I pray that you will open their eyes to see the beautiful, precious gift of grace you are offering through your Son to all who will bow their knee before you, repent of their sin, believing in Christ and his righteousness. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance to gather together 
Please use what we have seen today for your glory's sake in each of our lives. Amen.